Dory Peaches Academy. So, you've got a great idea for an immersive experience, you've written a treatment, and you might even have started prototyping it. But now you need some money to make it. Unlike film and TV that has established business models from pre-sales to licensing, the immersive sector is just getting started. So you're going to have to be creative about how you access different pots of money. I'm Shahani Fernando, and this is the Story Futures Academy podcast. I find myself floating, floating, floating. Welcome to virtual reality, or VR. You don't know what it's like to stand where I'm standing. Just look around you. You are going to undergo many different kinds of reactions. In this episode, we'll be talking about sources of funding and looking at how makers are trying to create sustainable business models. We'll hear from Mike Jones, a producer at Marshmallow Laser Feast, about the location-based entertainment model where people buy tickets to a physical experience. And to Dave Ranyard, CEO of Dream Reality Interactive, who's been successful at creating mobile augmented reality games. But first, here's Liz Rosenthal, who can usually be found somewhere trying out something at the very cutting edge of this crazy world. There's one thing I love. It's called Tilt Fashion, I think, and you walk down a catwalk and you can step into the dresses. Oh, great. <laughs> and then wander around the Museum of Realities. There was an opening party of Cannes XR, so the market part of Cannes had a market VR section. And I, I went to the opening party, so I, because I, I knew about Tilt Fashion before, I ran down to, well, I teleported, I should say, <laughs> down, grabbed a dress and went to the party. It was great. Everyone was like, wow, where did you get that? Um, so it's really, it's super fun as a venue. Liz isn't talking about a real party that she attended. No, it was a virtual party at a virtual film festival and she was wearing a virtual dress, borrowed for the occasion. Not really surprising for someone who's been at the forefront of immersive and interactive storytelling. She's founder and CEO of Power to the Pixel and the curator of Venice VR, the Venice Film Festival's official competition section. She's also executive producer of Creative XR, a joint initiative between Digital Catapult and Arts Council England, to enable creative teams to develop prototypes of immersive content. Liz has a background in film producing and has more recently spent years as a consultant in innovation strategy to help businesses and creators to finance and distribute immersive projects. Liz, wonderful to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So Liz, this is a rapidly changing industry, as we know, and as a result, financing sources for these projects are always challenging. I know that one of the things you do is track how projects are being financed and distributed. So what are the major financing streams at the moment, do you think? At the moment, I would say that the two main areas that are important for creative, immersive work are soft funds, so government funds, and then the hardware and software manufacturers who have the vested interest in this format working. When you're working in a new field, you often find there are new sectors that come into it. You have to start really being creative and working across different industry silos and sectors. And you start realizing that finance can come from many different places. The last time I did a big presentation on this, I think I had 12 sectors of finance. But what's really appeared are those two sectors, the, you know, the hardware and software manufacturers and the uh, government soft funding. 
Before, I would have said, you know, the traditional film and television industry were interested in XR and still are. And they were spending a lot of R&D money in this. So a lot of the Hollywood studios, for example, were making companion pieces to go with their temple titles, whether they were games or movies or television shows. We're seeing a little bit less of that now. Um, and then there were the public service broadcasters, And some of the private channels like Sky, for example, or the BBC obviously had its hub, which um, no longer exists. It was a kind of pilot program. And Sky is a little less active now. Um, So it comes and goes and it's all a matter of sort of charting it as things progress. No, absolutely. And I suppose the bigger players like the Oculuses, the Vives, Sony, they're really leading the way in terms of both headset take up and the funding, aren't they? Absolutely. I think what's really hard for people who come from a more artistic or entertainment background is that a lot of the funding is going into game studios and games titles because, you know, the consumer market tends to be gamers. So they're very much sort of pushing towards that sector. And it's quite difficult for those who come from a more narrative or arts background to find funding from those headset manufacturers. But you talked a bit about government funding and R&D. I mean, certainly in the UK, that seems to have come on leaps and bounds in in the last few years, at least. I would divide it into two different sides. There's the technology R&D, which comes from funding from companies such as UKRI. And then there's the content funding, which comes from programmes like Creative XR or from the Arts Council. And you know, a little bit from the BFI, but it's still something that is quite nascent and there is a lot of substantial money for content. There are R&D programmes, obviously, like Audience of the Future, which are incredibly helpful for funding big projects or technology, but we don't have any constant stream of XR funding that is a fund where people can go to at any time of the year or they have four calls, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't have anything like that. Whereas I would say... In countries like France and Canada, who've always been very supportive of funding new forms, they have bodies like the CNC, you know, their equivalent of the BFI, who've been funding interactive and immersive work for over 10 years um, with their multimedia fund. And then in Canada, there are several national and regional options as well. In a way, for makers, it's really important to be quite creative in terms of your funding sources, isn't it? And I suppose one of the things that seems to be a pattern is co-productions and really pulling together a whole range of different sources to be able to reach your target budget. Absolutely. If you want to access, for example, French money, you would have to find a French co-producer who then applies to the CNC or applies to regional bodies that have funding in France to access that money. And you have to sort of really work out with that producer how much of that money you have to spend in that territory on the project and obviously make sure they're the right skills in that territory. And once something is on a storefront, what's the kind of revenue split once it's gone to Oculus or Viveport? So the split tends to be um, 70-30 in favour of the rights holder or the producer. If you're going to work with Oculus and they finance your project, you'll have a very specific deal with them. So what they will ask for is a window of exclusivity on their storefront for a certain period of maybe up to six months. Um, It could be shorter, which I would strongly advise. And they will give you essentially a pre-sale 
So a license to show that work and that window of exclusivity. Something that I'm quite excited about is obviously the telcos, Mm. especially in the Far East. There's a great sales agent called Iconic Engine who are licensing content for telecoms, especially in um, Korea and China. They're also licensing for companies like Orange in France and Deutsche Telekom in Germany. And the kind of deal terms they're doing tend to be for up to a 12-month license period. It's geo-blocked and they're getting, you know, it's a parameter of 3,000 US dollars to about 20,000 US dollars. So, you know, that's a nice amount of money for a geo-blocked license on, you know, Telco's platform. And I think this is going to be very interesting as we see the development of 5G. Liz, you're one of the co-curators of the Venice Film Festival's virtual reality section. And this year you had great success with making it a remote event that audiences could access via VR social platforms, as well as through Viveport and Oculus TV. Quite a feat. But what role do film festivals play in enabling work to get distributed and more generally to raise the profile of this sort of work? What we're really happy and we you know, feel incredibly supported at Venice with is the fact that XR is basically seen as a new art and entertainment form. It's put in the same place as the feature film competition. We have three awards. You know, the the makers who win our three awards get lions. They're part of the awards ceremony. We have our own press team, which is incredibly important because this is a big issue again, is we need critics and commentators to write about the art form, not just about the technology, but actually XR as a, as a new form of experience for audiences. And that doesn't happen as well. So curation awards at major festivals and critical acclaim are three really important things. One studio that's had a huge amount of critical acclaim is Marshmallow Laser Feast. Over the years, it's been pushing the boundaries of what is possible at the intersection of art and technology, winning numerous awards along the way. Creative England names it as one of the UK's top 50 creative companies. In 2019, they produced We Live in an Ocean of Air, an installation at the Saatchi Gallery in London that up to 12 people could do at a time, wearing backpack PCs, along with haptics, breath sensors, heart monitors and body trackers. It ran for six months, having been extended twice, and sold 28,000 tickets over its entirely sold-out run. At the start of the experience, you're in a pitch-black environment. And then a gentle uh, voice starts to talk to you. Find a relaxed, comfortable position. And ultimately, you're going to go on a slight uh, breathing meditation just to relax you down. Look around. And you'll see the... um, the arteries within your kind of vascular system come to life. And as you drop your hand down, then the natural environment will appear in front of you. And it's this beautiful giant sequoia tree um, set in this gorgeous glade. Follow your breath as it flows through the forest. And you kind of gradually progress into the forest and you come up to the sequoia tree. And then you've got this decision, do I step inside? And then hopefully you do, and you'll get to see the inner workings of the tree. And the rain will fall and the root systems will come to life and the flow of water will gradually draw you and the water up through the tree and your virtual body will start to move up and gradually you go on a journey to the canopy, which hopefully is the crescendo of this kind of meditative experience. 
Mike Jones is a senior producer at Marshmallow Laser Feast. He was heavily involved in this location-based experience, what's known in the industry as LBE. These types of immersive experiences are generally site-specific, ticketed, and rely often on theatrical sets and installations. Other examples like this that you may have heard of are The Void's Star Wars Experience and Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds by British company Dot Dot Dot. So, Mike, I'm going to cut to the chase and ask you how you looked at funding We Live in an Ocean of Air, because it's a seriously ambitious project. As part of our kind of research and due diligence, we basically went out and modelled ticket prices and did lots of exploration into kind of what people were willing to pay in various different regions around the world. An experience would last 30 minutes and, you know, someone would charge $30 for it. And that was generally kind of a good benchmark. So it was kind of a pound or a dollar a minute, you know, or a euro a minute was a good way of assessing what ticket price we wanted to charge. We looked at the kind of, based on our experience, what the capital investment might be to first make it content-wise, the hardware that we think might be involved and the cost to present it. And then we ultimately got a budget together and looked for for ways to source that. And some of that was financed. Some of that was in-kind from us. We had some help from HP and also from Five. And then some of it was just pure sponsorship, which is not an angle we've ever thought about before as artists. But, you know, you can get some like-minded brands on board and then also just kind of aligned with the way we are thinking. You had something like 1.6 million Instagram impressions and another 1.5 million impressions on Twitter and Facebook. How were you able to reach so many people? Because only a limited number could actually do the experience and you sold out pretty quickly. We have always been very conscious of the fact that, you know, you need to create an experience that is not purely just in headset. You know, the first point you get in touch with your kind of audience or your customers is when the journey starts. So when positioning ourselves in a gallery, we could only put 226 people through a day. And the, and the gallery gets, by the weekend, they're getting five, six, seven thousand people through. And you can only have a cake for 226. You have to curate this whole room to be an experience. Hence the projection screens, the ambient soundscape we played. There was an ambient sense smell within the room. And you could go and sit and watch the screen behind, or you could watch the people performing, or you could listen to their experiences as they're going through the work. How much did you plan the project to be a touring piece? Had that always been part of your business model? And did you have other venues lined up after the Searchy Gallery? One of the big learnings we've got is that we didn't put enough emphasis on this at the beginning when we decided to make the work. If you look at kind of the average lead time to kind of get in an organisation. In Asia, it's kind of like three to six months because there are so many museums and galleries. Mm. In Europe, it can be sort of average about 18 months. In America, it can be about three years. And we were kind of slightly naive, perhaps, in thinking that if it's a success, someone will just take it. And one of the things in our business model, we always thought that it would be one one package of kit. So, our, you know, the thing we've made at Saatchi will then tour to Destination 1 and then it'll go to Destination 2 and then Destination 3. Mm. Whereas actually we're kind of almost at a franchising type model. We've just signed a, a distribution agreement with a museum called the Phi Centre who we've presented work at before uh, and they're going to duplicate the kit and they're going to tour around North America with that equipment. So it might be on in two locations at once. And we're having other conversations in Europe and in Asia that might mean it's on at three or four locations at once. So tell me a little bit about the costs that were incurred and also your turnover, Mike. How did this experience run? 
So we grossed around about half a million pounds worth of ticket sales. That included the VAT and booking fee, and which takes the ticket price down to about £15 that we were looking um, mm. to achieve ultimately. Uh, and then from that, you know, on a full sold out day, fully operational team, um, our operational cost was around about 40% of a full sold out day's revenue. So with an experience like this, at what point do you aim to see a return on the costs? The business model we built ultimately was for it to go to 10 sort of similar locations to the Saatchi Gallery around the world. If each place sells at 100%, you could probably recoup your investment in about three and a half destinations. After that, if it doesn't quite sell out for, you know, 60% sales, maybe five, that, that was the goal really. And then also, you know, earn some money back ultimately to try and to bring some more passive stable income into the business and, and then help us make the next one. How has... COVID-19 impacted your business and particularly the LB work that you do? COVID, without a doubt, has definitely made us think long and hard about our business model and business plan, I suppose. We were in the process of perhaps signing three or four contracts for Ocean of Air, which would mean it would have launched mid-2020 in a variety of destinations and those obviously were delayed. With regards to the sort of slightly longer term, I think what COVID did was accelerate the next part of the business plan. So, you know, I've talked earlier about making a piece of work. It goes on tour, making the next one. And then kind of three or four years down the line, we were thinking once we've kind of built lots of individual worlds, we'll combine them into one world. And that one world would be the kind of the master app game. So that app online side, we're we're just bringing that exploration further forward to think about how we might create digital pieces of work that live in digital environments, which are accessible around the world and not necessary for people to go to a particular place. Where do you end and the plants begin? Thanks to Mike for joining us, as I think that case study certainly shows what the pre-COVID outlook was like for larger-scale touring work. But in the current climate, makers are understandably looking at pivoting to creating experiences for home entertainment and to find financially sustainable models. Dave Ranyard is CEO of Dream Reality Interactive, an immersive studio founded in 2016, and previously he was director of Sony's London studio. They've made VR puzzle platform game Arca's Path, Hold the World, an immersive experience in association with Sir David Attenborough, and Orbu, a beautiful Japanese garden-themed AR game for iOS. Dave, you've had lots of experience in the games world, but how different is the model for funding virtual reality games? So if you go back to the VR market at the moment, I think it's challenging for anyone to say, here, I've got this great idea for a game, it's going to cost us a million dollars to make, and you know, if it's a hit, we'll make $5 million back. Now, there are some games, Beat Saber is probably the one that must have made yes. tens of millions by now. It's become a you know global IP. And, I, and even other music games I'm hearing are doing like $100,000 a month. So although some games can make a decent return on investment in VR, it's still a small percentage, maybe 5% of the market that are actually making a profit, which is not really a tenable scenario. And so traditional game publishing models don't necessarily work. I can't go to a games publisher with a VR game. In fact, they will say, I really don't want a VR game because it's just not going to make money. Oh, dear. So that's challenging, yeah. Now, there are other ways. The platforms, so, you know, PlayStation, HTC, Oculus, do offer grants and support and deals to make VR content. And that's great. 
but that's a tough gig to get because there's not many funders. So if I think of it from a games perspective, if I have a million dollar pitch, I can probably go to 20 or more games publishers with that. If I'm going to the platforms, I've got three to go to. And where else can you go for money? There are obviously other things you can do in the UK. There's grants like Innovate UK. We've done one of those. That was really good. You can get 70% of your costs paid. But again, you know, you've got a lot of mouths to feed that are applying for those. So uh, then there's other interesting things. I mean, just putting COVID to one side, there has been a lot of location-based VR. And I think there's opportunities there to get commissioned to make something, especially if you can do it with some kind of IP. So if you can get a cool film IP or TV show, then the, you know, the attraction of going with a few mates to do X, you know, adventurous IP, yeah. then I think that's probably quite doable. You're now really focusing on mobile games using AR. What are you excited about there? So then mobile is a very interesting space to look at because it's grown and grown really over 10 years, which is actually pretty quick for such a big disruptor on an industry. So free to play is huge on mobile. And this really is a concept that anybody who likes a game has the opportunity to spend as little or as much as they want on that game. You might buy a subscription. And so if you look at it from a commercial perspective, do I want to spend £2 on this game? Do I want to spend £100 on this game? And all those are catered for. So it means that you can really maximise the commercial return and the audience. AR is actually coming by stealth. So think of how many devices have a camera in now. But I think the presentation to the consumer is less about saying, here's an AR thing. It's more about, here's more cool stuff you can do with your cameras. And I think, again, that's another uh, big removal of friction. And AR being on phones, there's now 1.6 billion devices that can do AR. Yes, yeah, enormous, and a, isn't it? And like a platform like Snapchat, which is an AR platform, has 229 million daily active users on mobile. And that actually is the sort of target space for us as a business now. Let's talk about that. You've recently formed a partnership with Snapchat and created this um, project called Singheads. Tell us how that's going to work exactly. It's a mobile front camera. So there are other players in the market. These are all, you kind of hold your phone up and you can video yourself singing, etc. And the big USP we have is with our partnership with Snapchat is that we can use your Bitmoji to create a 3D version of yourself, which is actually overlaid on the camera feed. It sounds quite technical, but actually what happens is you look at your phone, you've got this cool Bitmoji cartoon version of yourself that reacts to your singing, your eyes blinking and so on, and you can create a performance. And you've got a little bit of anonymity there. You've kind of styled yourself slightly differently to get over any shyness they have. And then partnering with Snapchat is exactly the kind of uplift and audience that we want to find. And how does the kind of financial model work with that? We're having a direct relationship with the consumer. So they download our game for free. We're actually looking at a free-to-play model with subscription. Um, If you wanted to play it, you can pick from a number of songs to sing and play those. That's absolutely free. You'll see some adverts in between. And so provided we get enough scale, we'll make decent revenue off those ads 
And then if you get really into it, you might buy some vanity items or you might buy some vouchers to get access to more content, more songs, or you might choose to pick up a subscription and then you, you get access to everything and you pay X per month. As a company, do you think you're pivoting into AR because of the size of the market and the potential of where that avatar space is going? When we set out, we always said we're an AR and VR company. And funnily enough, in 2016, nobody gave two hoots about the AR bit. It was all the VRs coming. It's going to be amazing. Over our time, we've actually done 10 projects, and half of them have been AR and half have been VR. I think your point about pivoting is a good one. We are focusing on more ubiquitous devices, and that's partly because the VR space is challenging, and we have got a lot of experience in AR. And that's not to say we're not going to carry on doing VR, but I think... In truth, we're not actively seeking those sort of partnerships, whereas we are actively seeking more AR partnerships and avatar partnerships. Thanks to all my guests today, who've outlined some of the challenges and chinks of light in terms of the funding landscape. This is a subject on which there's loads more to say, but it should have given you a sense of how you might think about piecing together funding from grants, co-production partners, tech companies and even brand sponsorship. Touring large-scale work will hopefully be an option again in the future. But while it's not, it's a good chance to focus on the accessibility of platforms that are already in the hands of millions of users. I hope you've enjoyed this first series from the Story Futures Academy and that you're inspired to get involved in this shiny new world. I can't promise a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but as a maker, I can definitely say that it's exciting, rewarding and has huge potential to transform the way stories are created, experienced and shared. If you've enjoyed it, we'd love you to review us and share it on social media. Do check out the links and resources on the Story Futures Academy website and sign up to our newsletter, which is information on courses, grants and other opportunities. Go to storyfutures.com forward slash academy. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Hope it's been useful and see you again soon. Story Futures Academy is the UK's National Centre for Immersive Storytelling and is funded as part of UKRI's Audience of the Future Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. Listener.